Once again, good morning. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 17? We are coming to the end. In our study in the book of Joshua, we have been looking at it as a spiritual instruction manual on victorious Christian living, according to what Paul told us in Romans 15, verse 4, that all these things in the Old Testament were written for our learning, that God has placed in these historical stories, true stories, spiritual principles that we can glean to live our Christian lives by. This morning, we're going to just pick a few things out of chapters 17 through 22. Not that we'll cover things in all those chapters, but that will end the second major section of the book. First five chapters was entering the land. Second section up from 6 through chapter 22 is conquering the land. Next week we'll finish by looking at holding on to the land. So we just want to look at some things in these chapters this morning, 17 to 22. Uh, looking at some of the dangers to be on guard against. Things that the enemy will try to use to stifle our march towards total victory in our lives. Uh, try to hinder us from taking possession of everything that God has for us in Christ. Jesus Christ is our spiritual promised land. And God has promised us many great and precious promises that are ours in Christ. But we have to possess them by faith. Just like they had to possess their blessings there by faith. Now, these are things just to look out for, be on guard against. But uh, the first one we've already kind of looked at, it's what I'll call the danger of commixing. The danger of commixing. Webster defines commixing as the act of blending or mixing together two things or two substances. When it comes to our lives for God, we must always be on guard that our love for Him isn't mixed and therefore diluted with a love for this world. It's something that all God's people need to guard against. John put it this way in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 15. He said, do not love this world, which means the world system. Not, you know, nature and the planet Earth, that kind of thing. The world system. Satan is behind the world system. Don't love this world, nor the things it offers. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. Well, that's true of unbelievers. They totally love the world and have no love for God in them. But even believers in Christ can love the Lord and still love the world, right? We call that being carnal Christians. Stuck halfway between Egypt, the world, being unsaved, and then taking full possession of what you have in Christ. So a lot of Christians who are stuck in that middle point. They're in a wilderness. And they're kind of trying to hang out of the world with one hand and the Lord with the other. Never works, by the way. And we're commanded in Scripture not to do that or allow that to happen. Because as Jesus said, we can't serve two masters. But you know, the Lord Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And the Greek word means supreme, above all the others. He said that you love the Lord your God with all your, and the first one to lead the list is heart, followed by soul, mind, and strength. Last week, we looked at Caleb. We said Caleb's name actually means wholehearted. And we saw that he was one of the only men, I think Joshua was no doubt another one, to drive out the enemy completely from his inheritance. And he wound up living in a city which he conquered and renamed Hebron. Hebron means communion. And we said last week, here we have a man named Wholehearted who wound up living in a place called communion. And you know what? That's always where those who have a full-on heart for God wind up living. You know why? They won't tolerate living anywhere else. 
If your heart is totally given over to God, guess what? You're not going to be comfortable living in the world, close to the world. You want to be in fellowship with the Lord. You want to abide in Christ, right? Now, several hundred years later, Solomon, the son of David, took the throne. And on the day he was coronated as king, his father David gave, some, gave him some very godly advice. You don't have to turn there, but just listen. First Chronicles 28, verse 9. David said, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father. That Hebrew word means know him deeply and intimately. Solomon, don't just know him superficially. Know him deeply and intimately. And serve him with a loyal heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Well, you remember this story. Solomon started out really good in his relationship with God as a young king, right? I mean, initially, he loved the Lord. He was close to the Lord and so on. But after a while, as you read the account of Solomon's life, he began to feel like something was missing in his life. A lot of Christians come to that point. They love the Lord. They get saved. They love the Lord. They're on fire. They're going to church. But then somewhere down the road, something begins to happen. They feel like something is missing. Solomon began to think that there was something missing from his, from his life. Some, his heart wasn't really satisfied. It was incomplete in some way. David had admonished him to serve the Lord with a loyal heart. However, the Holy Spirit tells us in 1 Kings 11 verse 4 that Solomon's heart was not loyal to the Lord his God. The word loyal carries with it the idea of completeness or wholeheartedness. Solomon's heart was not completely given over to God. Solomon had what we would call a divided heart. Half of the heart, his heart went for the Lord and half of it went for the world. In fact, the Hebrew word literally means at peace with. Solomon's heart was not really at peace with God. I believe Solomon was a believer. I believe he really knew the Lord. But his heart was still restless. There's a lot of Christians, a lot of people who really are Christians, they know the Lord. But their hearts are still restless. They still feel like they're missing something. That maybe the world is a little bit to offer that they, they can benefit from and so on. And Solomon had that kind of a heart. His heart was not satisfied in his relationship with the Lord as his father David's heart had been. David had a heart for God. David didn't care about anything else. David says, one thing I have desired from the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I might forever behold the beauty of the Lord. David says, I just want to hang out in the temple all day long. I want to live here. I just want to be in God's presence. That was all David needed. It's all he wanted. Solomon was not that way. Solomon felt kind of empty inside. Started out well, but uh, didn't seem satisfied after a while. And uh, because of it, he slowly began to turn away from the Lord to try to fill that void with other things. And in the process, he spent most of his adult life in a backslidden state, chasing happiness in a number of different ways. In fact, he chronicles these empty pursuits in the book of Ecclesiastes, where he talks about the things that he pursued for many years, things that he thought would make him or bring him true happiness, things like money, success, materialism, pleasure. You can read the book for yourself. But near the end of his life, Solomon wises up. Interesting, right? The wisest guy in all the world at that time had to wise up about some things. He wises up and comes back to God. And he writes all this down in the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, the book of Ecclesiastes is a sermon. Solomon calls himself a preacher. 
Ecclesiastes comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which is the word we get our word church from in the New Testament. We got a church service going on in the book of Ecclesiastes. We got a preacher, we got a congregation, and the message that Solomon preached through that book was this Don't be like me, a wise guy. I thought I knew everything. You know, my dad, he was a guy who knew the Lord. He tried to tell me, son, I'm telling you. All you got to do is love the Lord with all your heart, serve him with a loyal heart, willing mind. That's all you need to do. That's what life's all about. Solomon thought, ah, my dad, what does he know? So I went looking for happiness in all the wrong places. I pursued all these things for years and years until I wasted most of my life, only to find out at the very end my dad was right. I should have listened to him. And I want to pass along what I've learned to the younger generation. Here it is, bottom line. Here's what life's all about. Love God and obey what he has said. That's pretty much it. What is he saying? Here's life in a nutshell. Have a heart that is wholehearted towards God. Don't be divided in your love for God like I was. Hey, look, keep the door of your heart locked against the things of this world that constantly want to seep in and take control of your heart. Solomon said in the book of Proverbs, above all else, this is important, guard your heart. For out of it flows the issues of life. Guard what gets in there, guys. That's all I'm going to say. I'm telling you. I let it happen. And I'm sorry I ever did. Whenever you start thinking the world is something you need or something that's going to fulfill you, you're making the same mistake I made. I'm just trying to keep you from it. So the danger of commixing. Secondly, we see in these chapters another principle, the danger of complaining. Turn to verse uh, chapter 17. I just want to read verse 14. Then the children of Joseph. Now these would be talking about the two sons of Joseph, the tribe of Ephraim and the half-tribe of Manasseh. The children of Joseph spoke to Joshua saying, Why have you given us only one lot and one share to inherit since we are a great people? In other words, you know, we're way too important for such a small piece of land, Joshua. Don't you know who we are? We're a great people. They complained that the size of their portion was not worthy of their greatness as a people. Kind of reminds me of the story, true story of a young minister who came to the great Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers one day. Spurgeon pastored a church in London uh, back in the 1800s, a very large church, successful church. And a young minister came to him one day, you know, and uh, complained to Spurgeon uh, that his congregation was too small for such a gifted and dynamic preacher such as he. Can you imagine that? Spurgeon said, well, how many do you have in your church? About 100, he said. Spurgeon said, well, I think that's going to be enough to give account for on the day of judgment. You know, with greater responsibility comes greater accountability. Be careful what you pray for or you wish for. But in verse 15, Joshua told his brethren, look, if you're a great people, this is your opportunity to prove it. Go do what Caleb did. Go take the mountains that you were given, okay? Go take the mountain there. Claim that. Defeat the giants up there. You see, these tribes had not yet fully possessed what God had already given to them, which was the mountain country. Why? Well, it's tough fighting in the mountains. There's giants that live up there. I mean, that's hard work. That's, that's dangerous work. How different their attitude was from that of Caleb. They wanted an easy ministry. You know, they didn't want too many challenges. They wanted... Comfortable service for God. A lot of God's people want comfortable service for the Lord. 
they, they don't want to really serve in the tough spots, you know. Give me a nice, comfortable church somewhere, you know, in a nice, quiet neighborhood where I can just, you know, have a nice, comfortable ministry. Caleb, on the other hand, what did he say? We learned last week in chapter 14, what did he say? Give me that nice, comfortable area by the beach there so I can put up a little tent and have a nice little beachfront cottage going. I said, give me the mountain where, give me the mountain where the giants live. I want that. I'm 85 years old. I don't want to retire. I want the, I want my greatest battles to be ahead of me. Give me the, give me the mountain where the, where the giants live. I love Caleb. I mean, here these tribes wanted more influence. You might say they wanted a, a bigger ministry when they haven't even, hadn't even been faithful in conquering what God had already given to them. I mean, these principles apply to us today, I think, uh, like never before. Uh, before we ask God for more, let's make sure we're being faithful to the responsibilities he's already given to us. And again, pastors are really guilty uh, of this. I've, ta- I've heard about uh, more than a few pastors who, you know, were, were pastoring relatively small churches, you know, maybe 50 or 100 people. And they went ahead and they plunged their churches into this massive debt to buy a building that held, I don't know, maybe eight or 900,000 people. They only had 50 people. So what do you need a church that holds 1,000? Because this is way too small for my talent. We're going to be, you know, we're going to do this in faith and we're going to have a giant ministry. And they wound up bankrupting the church because God maybe hasn't called them to that giant ministry. Or at least not yet. The Bible says don't despise the days of small things. Why? Because God is testing us to see if we're going to be faithful in a few things before he will give us greater things to do for him. Somebody has said one time, an older missionary talking to a younger guy who wanted to be a missionary in China, talking about how God was leading him to China to be a missionary. And the older missionary wisely said, well, before you cross an ocean to be a missionary in China, how faithful have you been to crossing the street to witness to your neighbors? Good words. Alan Redpath put it this way, suddenly I quote, Stop crying for greater opportunities until you have done the work in the place that God has allotted to you. Is your home sweeter and lovelier and more radiant because you are a Christian? If not, drive out the enemy there first. For if we fail in the small portion allotted to us, to us God can never trust us with Greater, end quote. Now, when we talk about complaining, I want you to realize that when it comes to complaining about anything, whether it's ministry or the job you have or the spouse you have or your health or finances, anything that God has given to you or anything that God may have allowed to come into your life, know this, when you complain about those things, God takes it personally. Ever think about that? Why does he take it personally? Because the Bible says that he is orchestrating all the events that touch our lives. When we complain about our circumstances, we are indirectly complaining against God. You don't have to turn there, but in Numbers chapter 21, as God was leading the children of Israel through the wilderness, it says the people at one point became very discouraged. The Hebrew word means impatient. It's taken too long, all right, on the way. They became impatient on the way. This led to questioning God's ability to lead them because the journey was long and difficult. Hey, why were they even in the wilderness? Because they refused to obey God and enter into the promised land, right? They drove themselves into the wilderness. God, That wasn't God's will for their lives. Because they had no faith, they had no trust in God, 
that they wound up wandering for 40 years. And then they had the audacity to say, what's taking so long, God? Isn't it just like us? We often do things that plunge our lives into difficult circumstances. And then we get angry at God that it's taken so long to clean the mess up. And God is saying, oh, really? You're growing impatient with me. Well, hang in there. We've got a few more years left to go. Now, that might not be your situation. God may not be planning on, you know, putting you through. You know, but it's like Christians who marry unbelievers. They don't really pray about it. They don't really seek the Lord. They enter into it. And then it's a mess. And so then they're praying, God, get me out of the mess. Save my spouse. It's terrible living to, uh, being married to an unbeliever. And time is going on, right? And they're getting impatient with God. We're, come on, Lord. Yeah, it's been like, you know, six months. We're, save them, will you? God is saying, well, it might take a little longer than that. You know what? I didn't want this for you, but I'll work with the situation. I love you. I'll work with you. But their questioning of God's guidance led to complaining about God's goodness in Numbers 21, verse 5. And this combination brought upon them God's judgment in verse 6. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. And many of the people of Israel died. Paul said these things were written for our learning. Look, as Christians, when we question God's ability to lead our lives, because we find ourselves going through difficult circumstances, which, you know, have us discouraged, or because we've become impatient and things aren't moving as quickly as we would like, it's easy to begin to complain against God. And when you begin to do that, inevitably it leads us to question the goodness of God. I mean, if he was really a loving God, would I really be going through this situation? I mean, if he was really good and he was really loving, why am I in this situation for so long? Again, like these couple of tribes that came to Joshua, they say, you know, I, I, I deserve better, all right? Um, I deserve more than this, all right? I'm a good person. I shouldn't have to go through this. Well, sometimes we put ourselves in these situations, and God is gracious, and he will work with the situation, but we have to now humble ourselves and just wait upon him and be the kind of Christians God wants us to be in the situation. But again, when you complain about your circumstances as a Christian, God takes it personally because he's the one who has led you into that circumstance, unless, of course, you find yourself in a terrible circumstance because of sin, that's a different story. You're walking with the Lord, though, and you're trying to do what's right by him, and you find yourself going through a very difficult time. We can either complain, which is wrong, or do what God has said in his word, which is to thank him in all things. Give thanks in all things, Paul said. Not for all things, in all things. Why? Because he said in Romans chapter 8, because all things are working together for our good. Because we love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. That takes faith, though. It takes faith. It's easy. Anybody can thank God when things are going well. You don't be a Christian to do that. It takes a true child of God with faith in their heart, who has lived a good, who has tried to live in obedience to the Lord, finds itself going through a very difficult time and says, God, I thank you. I don't know what you're doing here, but I, I trust you. I gave you my life years ago. I trust you, Lord, so whatever you're doing, give me grace to live in this situation in a way that honors you. So be on guard against the danger of commixing. Be on guard against the danger of complaining. Number three, be on guard against the danger of complacency. Turn to chapter 18. And let's just read verses 2 and 3. It says, But there remained among the children of Israel seven tribes, 
which had not yet received their inheritance. Then Joshua said to the children of Israel, How long will you neglect to go and take go and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers has given you? I think J. Vernon McGee kind of translated it this way. He says, How long are you going to stand around with your hands in your pockets? What are you doing? Just standing around doing nothing. Now, we've already spent time on this over the la- during the last two studies about complacency. So I'm not going to really uh, get into this in great detail again. But just to say this, the reason for complacency, listen to me, is always stagnation. The reason for stagnation would include everything from growing comfortable due to self-satisfaction. I mean, you know, some people, they, they come so far in their Christian walk and they're satisfied. They're comfortable. I just want to stay here. I don't want to be challenged anymore. I don't want to step out of my comfort zone anymore. I just want to have a nice, comfortable Christianity. Others, their walk grinds to a halt because of discouragement in some way. Depression is a big one. I'm hearing a lot of Christians saying to me, I don't know what's wrong with me. I have been so depressed. I'm not really a depressed person. I'm not clinically depressed. I don't take medication. I'm just, I'm just all of a sudden going through this horrible depression. I think that's warfare. I think the enemy is trying to, to get you to a point where you're, you're, you become so discouraged, so disheartened, so depressed, you just say, what's the point of going on? What's the point of walking with God anymore? We are in a battle, guys. There's a lot of things that the devil is using to cause us to stagnate, to our, cause our walk to grind to a, to a halt. Yes, com- comfortableness, that's one. Discouragement, depression, disinterest. A lot of Christians just seem to be losing interest in the things of God. Or laziness. I mean, the reasons are many as to why Christians come to a standstill in their walk with God. But as we've already said, the problem is you never really stand still when you stop walking forward with God. You think you do, but you don't. You always begin to slide backwards. And this demonstrates itself, I think, primarily in that the areas of your flesh that you had previously conquered with the power of the Spirit, right? You stop smoking. You stop looking at pornography. You stop spending so much time watching TV or something else. God gave you victory. And how beautiful that is, right? When God gives you victory over an area that seems to just have had a hold on you, and suddenly you're, you're walking in victory now. It's not a problem anymore. But when you stop moving forward with the Lord, suddenly, after a period of time, those begin to come back. The flesh rises up again, and it always will. The flesh is never really dead. You crucify it daily. The flesh has this uncanny ability to come back to life. All right. And it will do that. It will lay dormant. As long as you're walking in the Spirit, I'm not saying you're never going to, it's not like it never hassles you, but I'm saying for the most part as you're walking in the Spirit and advancing forward with the Lord, you're conquering new territories. The Spirit has given you grace to stop smoking, to stop with the drugs, to stop looking at the pornography, to stop doing a lot of stuff, right? You start, you begin to stagnate in your walk with God, you begin to slide backwards. All of a sudden you're into TV again. All of a sudden you're fooling around with drugs again. Or you're watching the pornography again. These are evidences that you're beginning to slide backwards. The cure for complacency or the prevention of it is easy. <laughs> you're going to say, and I'm, I came here to hear this. Uh, look, here's the, here's the cure. Just keep moving in a forward direction with the Lord. Now, what can I tell you? I mean, that is it. Just 
Make sure you don't get comfortable. You don't let the depression keep you from fellowship with God's people. You don't allow the devil to use whatever it is you're going through to take you out of ministry. I think one of the best ways to, to, to keep moving forward is to stay in ministry or get involved in a ministry. Ministry keeps you accountable, right? I've told you before, you think every day of the week or every week that I uh, have to present studies and things like that, you think I feel like you know studying the Word. I love the Word. But there's times that I don't feel like I'm tired, you know. I, I don't feel like getting into the Word. I don't really feel it. And if I didn't have to be in the Word to study, to come and present a study to you guys, I'd isolate myself. I would just stay home. But you know what? I have to be in the Word. Because why? Because I have a ministry I'm accountable to. And so I start to get in the Word, and I pray, God, give me grace. And as I begin to study, it's right at the beginning, it's kind of dry, and I'm you know, just really not into it. And then all of a sudden, the Lord begins to take over. And, you, and I begin to, to just enjoy the studying. And I begin to see things that God has placed there. And it ministers to my heart. And I begin to write things down. And the Spirit of God keeps leading. And there have been weeks when I've come, as I've told you, to church. I have come not doing very well, feeling like a dry well. Every pastor, every teacher, every preacher feels that way at times. You feel like a dry well. I have nothing to give these folks, Lord, because I have nothing for myself. But be merciful and gracious. Use me in spite of me. And I'll come feeling pretty dry and dusty, spiritually speaking. I will open the word, and as I begin to teach, the spirit takes over. And all of a sudden, things are coming out of my mouth. I'm thinking, that's not me. That's the Lord. That's the Lord. And I will leave here oftentimes. Having dragged myself in here, I'll leave floating out of here. In the spirit. And I'll be, I'll be refreshed, revived. I'll be on the way home praising the Lord. Ministry keeps you accountable. It's, it's important to stay in ministry, to stay in some kind of a ministry that forces you to be faithful. Because look, if you're constantly moving forward with the Lord, the devil can't get you to slide backwards. The worst thing you can do is feel sorry for yourself and go isolate yourself somewhere. That's when the devil will really pound on you. As we've already pointed out, after seven years of war in Canaan, the men of Israel, the fighting men, well, they were just plain tired. They didn't want to fight anymore. All they wanted to do was kind of settle down in peace and comfort and enjoy what they had already taken possession of. And so later on in the book of Joshua, especially these upper chapters, or these later chapters, into the beginning of the book of Judges, we read how that tribe after tribe failed to drive the enemy completely out of their portion of land which they had received. As we pointed out last week, because they didn't drive the enemy out completely, but left these pockets of enemy occupation in the land that God had given to them, well, the enemy had a foothold. And the enemy's religious practices appealed to the flesh, whereas God's practices did not. What do I mean? Well, these pagan deities were worshipped through sexual orgy, Worship through all kinds of other means. That appeals to the flesh, right? And so it tended to draw people into their religion. God's people who fell into apostasy, idolatry, and eventually God removed them from the land for a time. If you stop moving forward, guys, and, and I encourage you not to do it, but you stop reading your Bible, I don't care if it's only reading a chapter or a day for a while, 
You stop spending time with the Lord in prayer. I don't care if it's a couple minutes here, a couple minutes there. You stop serving in ministry. If you stop working on yourself through God's grace where you, you give up trying to drive out the bad habits completely, you say, well, nobody's perfect. I've changed a lot. And you leave some of the bad stuff in there, some of the bad habits and so on. I'm going to tell you what, the devil's going to use this as a, as a foothold, as a beachhead from which he's going to reconquer the land God had already given you. All right, final one. This one comes out of chapter 22, and we'll call it the danger of conflict. Now, let me paraphrase this because we're not going to read the whole 34 chapters, or 34 verses. Let me tell you what happened, okay? You remember how that before they entered the promised land, at the end of their 40-year wandering in the wilderness, the tribe of Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh came to Moses and said, Look, we've got all these flocks and herds and animals. You know, this land on the east side of the Jordan, this is good grazing land. We don't want to inherit the land of promise. We want to hang out and, and inherit this land. And Moses went ballistic and said, are you out of your minds? Forty years ago, your forefathers refused to enter into the promised land. And we wanted 40 years. Now, after all that, you were telling us you don't want to enter in either. What is, we're going to be driven back into the wilderness for another 40 years. They said, no, 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 you got us all wrong. We will enter in with our brethren. We will fight alongside them for as long as it takes to gain the victory so that they can inherit that land. But when we're done, we want to come back over to the east side of the Jordan and live here. Now, I think that was a big mistake, personally. I think it was a big mistake. I mean, these guys were not living in the perfect place God had had for them. They were living close to it. So a lot of us live, Christians who live close to God's perfect will, but not quite in it. That's not good enough. So here, they had kept their word. They were faithful. They had fought alongside their brethren for seven years, and they had helped them conquer most of the land. And so Joshua in chapter 22 says, look, you guys have been faithful. You did exactly what you promised you were going to do. And now, he says, I want to send you off with bless my blessings. You've got a lot of spoil that you've taken over seven years of battle. Go over and enjoy your inheritance on the east side of the Jordan, and God be with you. So as Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh left, as they got to the Jordan River, before they crossed over, we read how they built this massive altar on the, on the promised land side, the west side of the Jordan, an altar that, that was a replica of the one in Jerusalem, or actually was Shiloh at this time, but a gigantic altar. When, it, when the other nine and a half tribes got word what had happened, they immediately jumped to the assumption that this was for the purpose of idolatry. That here these two and a half tribes were already turning away from the Lord. And we're going to bring idolatry into the land. And so they all gathered to fight against and wipe out these two and a half tribes. But to their credit, before they actually, you know, unleashed the armies, they sent the priest Phineas and a leader from each of the tribes to go with him to find out exactly what these folks were thinking. And they came to these two and a half tribes and said, look, What's with this treachery? Don't you remember when our forefathers did similar things and they gave examples how it worked out and God's judgment came upon us? This is terrible. This is, this is wrong. If you don't want to live on the east side of the Jordan, fine, but don't do this treachery. And they said, look, you, you've got us wrong. We did this not because we want to worship or, excuse me, sacrifice to the Lord on a false altar. They said, look, we're just worried that in time to come, your children are going to say to our children, you don't belong with us. Look, you're on the other side of the Jordan River. Why do you think you belong with us? 
So we built this altar as kind of a memorial or a witness. They called it the altar of witness to just be a, a, a memorial that we do belong to God. We are part of God's people, too. Now, there is all kinds of reasons, and I don't even want to get into them, why this altar was unnecessary. It was it was a, a, a mistake and so on and so forth. But let's just look at the conflict aspect of this, because conflict among God's people is one of Satan's chief ways of dividing us to conquer us. OK, conflict. Let me just say a few things about this and I'll give you a couple of principles and we'll close because we could spend weeks looking at just the subject of conflict. I don't want to go there. I do appreciate the way that the other nine and a half tribes handled this. They did jump to a faulty assumption which led to some false accusations. But before they went through with these things and actually began to kill these folks, they did sit them down and say, okay, what, what were you thinking here? Now, when they told them, look, here's what we, we we're not one to rebel. If, if we're guilty of rebellion against the Lord, you can kill us right now. This was just a memorial so that your kids in time to come will know that our kids are part of God's covenant people. Oh, well, when Phineas and the other leaders heard that, praise God, they said. Now we know God is with us. Oh, went back to the other tribes, told them what's going on, and they all rejoiced. It it diffused the whole situation. So thank God they did sit them down and talk with them. But let me just say this about conflict. Just give you a couple thoughts and we'll close. Conflict is a natural part of life. Whenever we interact with one another, I'm talking as the people of God now, there is going to be the potential for having differences of opinions, different ways of doing things, and that's going to lead to conflict. Many people fear conflict. You shouldn't fear conflict. Some try to avoid it. Some uh, act or react defensively to it, which leaves it unresolved and drives the anger and hurt deep inside, causing what the Bible calls a root of bitterness, which grows into the evil fruit of division and discord, and in the process defiles Many, Hebrews 12, verse 15. And as a result, what happens? Well, valuable relationships are damaged or destroyed. Churches are split. Marriages are wiped out. Friendships are ended. And the lawyers wind up getting rich. And if you're an attorney, nothing personal. (laughs) But one pastor put it this way. He said, and I quote, Many Christians carry a litigious attitude into their interpersonal relationships, especially toward other members in the local church. We too quickly quickly take offense with a brother, divide the fellowship into competing sides, and pull our membership to go elsewhere. Conflict in the church body isn't necessarily evil. It offers an opportunity to put the second commandment into practice. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't we want acceptance and patience from others? Whatever our views can we refuse to others what we desire for ourselves, end quote. Well, good point. No, we can't. Another author made this observation. He said, and I quote, All churches are vulnerable to conflict, perhaps especially evangelical ones, because of their independent and em- independence and emphasis on the individual's personal relationship to God. Conflict itself should not be seen as spiritually bad news. It is similar to conflict in marriage. The difference between a good marriage and bad marriage, uh, like the difference between a healthy church and unhealthy church, is not the amount of conflict, but the way in which it is processed or handled. Indeed, any local church that takes a mission seriously will generate all kinds of conflict. Listen, absence of conflict may be evidence of spiritual lethargy rather than health. End quote. Now, I like that. I mean, guess what? 
conflict is going to be a natural part of life, especially when you have passionate people who love the Lord and are passionate about serving him and standing up for his truth. We're going to disagree from time to time on issues or how things should be done because we're passionate for the Lord. You show me a church where there's no conflict. Usually that's not a spirit-filled church. That's a dead church where people walk in like zombies and nod, you know, and walk out. They don't care about anything. There's no passion for anything there. Just remember this, all right? Proverbs 27, verse 17, As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. This is what it's all about, guys. Conflict is used by God to what? To hone us and shape us. Sure, we come together like iron, right? We're all in our positions, just really hardened, you know, in our, our point of view. We come together and boom, we start smacking up against each other. Sparks are flying, right? What's happening? God is whittling us down. God is smoothing off the rough edges. He's teaching us how to work together. That's good for us. Otherwise, we just want to be lone rangers and call the shots. This forces us to learn how to work together. Oh, but I don't like conflict. I, I, I want a church where there really is no conflict. That's impossible. We just said that. But I'll draw your attention to Proverbs 14, verse 4. You've heard me quote this before. It says, where, there are, where, where no oxen are, the trough is clean. But much increase comes to the strength of an ox. Phil's paraphrase, you want a clean barn? Get rid of all the animals. But then don't expect to get much work done on the farm. You want a clean church with no messes? Get rid of all the people. But then don't expect to do much work for God. Look, conflict is a part of life. It's not bad in and of itself. It's how we handle it that determines whether it becomes beneficial or a real problem. Now let me just give you a couple of these principles and I promise we'll close, right? I'm not going to get into all the big conflict resolution and all that stuff. That's for another study. I'm just talking about you personally now. When conflict comes into your life, here's what you should do, all right? First of all, see conflict as an opportunity to demonstrate obedience toward God and an opportunity to be a witness to others around you. I'm talking about people of the world, primarily. You know, sometimes we wonder why God has allowed certain things like conflicts to come into our lives. I mean, we haven't deserved this. We didn't do anything wrong. All of a sudden, this person is on me. This person is against me. They're, they're saying bad things about me. What happened? I mean, I didn't do anything to deserve this. And we cry out to God because this is so unfair. And it might be unfair. But God never told us we would live in a world that's completely fair. He says, so when things happen to you, you can do one of two things. You can complain and get bitter. Or you can accept it. And you can see what you can do in this situation to learn and to grow. And to be a witness. That's the, that's the bottom line, right? Instead of viewing conflict as a painful thing, Christians need to see it for what God's trying to use it for. as an opportunity to humble ourselves, right? To give preference to one another. Paul says, you know, in honor, giving preference to one another instead of yourself. In other words, pushing others in front of you, all right? Conflict does that. It's an opportunity for us to humble ourselves. Say, so, you know what, I don't really agree with that point of view, but you know what? You know what? Let's, let's go with it. Let's, let's just go with it. Because you feel real strongly about that, and you know what? You could be right. Maybe I'm wrong. Let's do it your way. Let's see how it goes. You know, Paul said in Ephesians 4, he said, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, 
with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Hey, the world's watching us. There's going to be conflict among Christians. But how we handle it is going to be a real witness to the world for good or bad. When the world sees two people, Christians, in conflict, and yet they sit down, they're respectful, they're, they're not yelling or, you know, they're not running out for a baseball bat or whatever it might be, like the world does, right? And they talk it through and two people are humbling themselves. That's a great witness to the world. So first of all, see there's an opportunity to honor God through obedience and be a witness to others. Secondly, examine your own part in the conflict first before you go all off trying to attack somebody who is in conflict with you. Examine yourself. This would include not only your actions, but your attitudes, your motives, you know, and your words. Look, this is very difficult to look at ourselves honestly. We resist this. First of all, we're blinded by pride many times. So we don't really see ourselves honestly. Uh, God said in his word that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. We don't always know what's even in our own hearts. But it's important that we examine ourselves. Because God will reveal the selfishness in our own hearts. And yes, there is often selfishness in our hearts. Things that he wants us to change. And again, it provides an opportunity for us to be more like Christ. More like Christ. You know, Jesus did say, first remove the plank from your own eye. Then you'll see clearly to help your brother remove the speck out of his eye, right? Look, I've been around for a few years, and I'll tell you this right now. I can't think of, well, I don't know if I can think of any situation where the conflict was a result of one person and one person alone. It's usually a combination, right, of two people giving, you know, different amounts of, in, of fuel to the conflict. And sometimes we don't really know, as we think about it, we think, well, you know, I don't really think I'm wrong here. I can't see where I'm wrong at all. Well, then you do what David said in Psalm 139. He said, search me, O God, and know my what? heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God, I, I don't know what's in my own heart. I could be wrong here. I could be, you know, doing something that is really causing. I don't know, Lord. Show me. If you're sincere, he'll show you. And then, of course, you can follow the guidelines that Jesus laid out for conflict resolution in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. Go to them. They won't listen and take two others. Then go to the church the pastors, and so on. You can read about that on your own. Just remember this. Paul said in Galatians 5, verses 14 and 15, he said, For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But, he said, if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. The devil uses conflict quite uh, successfully. Because he's all about dividing and then conquering. So may God give us grace. These are not, of course, exhaustive principles. I mean, there's a lot of other things the devil will try to use to, uh, to hinder us from having total victory in our lives over the flesh and over the world and so on. Uh, I saw these as I was going over these chapters, you know, just taking some things just quickly, just to look at some of the more, more common things. So I hope it's helped you a little bit. And uh, starting... Uh, next week, in fact, we may finish next week. We don't know. We may finish Joshua altogether next week. We're going to get into now Joshua's final address, his farewell address. 
which covers chapters 23 and 4. So uh, read those, and um, we'll look at those next time. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your grace. We thank you, Father, that you have given us so many great and precious promises in Christ. And the devil is always going to try to rip us off. He's always going to try to stifle our growth, to uh, hinder us in some way from moving forward so that we stagnate and get discouraged and give up and run away and hide and so on. Father, give us grace to see through all that. Father, we pray right now in Jesus' name, if there are those this morning here this, here this morning who are experiencing severe depression that has them debilitated and feeling like they just can't go on. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray right now you'd break the oppression. Lift it, Lord, and place upon them your peace and your joy. But Lord, we give you our lives. We want to be all that you want us to be. Give us the grace, Lord, never to mix our hearts and our love for you with anything of this world. Give us grace, Lord, not to complain about anything, but to praise you for everything. Not to be complacent, Lord, but to keep moving forward. And Lord, to realize that conflict is inevitable, but give us grace not to be a source of false conflict by jumping to false assumptions, making false accusations, and being used by the devil to destroy our brethren instead of being used by the Spirit to bind up the brokenhearted and be one with each other. Father, we thank you. We ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.